Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne this morning. Lord, we come to honor you. We come to worship you. We come to worship and honor your Son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, who is our Lord and Savior, for who he is and for what he has accomplished for his people. He has accomplished salvation for his people. He has accomplished redemption for his people. And we come as his people who need him, who have been saved by him, who are waiting to behold his glory that he had with you before the foundation of the world. And Lord, as we go into your word, we pray that you show us Christ. We pray that you show us the things of Christ, the things of salvation, that we may walk in the light and not in darkness. And we pray now, Lord, for understanding as we go to the story of the Samaritan woman and her encounter with our Lord. And Lord, may you teach us and give us understanding to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 4, verses 1 to 14. John 4, verses 1 to 14. And this is what it reads. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had had that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself, and his sons and his cattle? Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Amen. For our title, our title is the Jesus of the despised. And as we have been doing, we are giving alternative titles 
so that we may try and capture what is being taught because it's multi-layered. There are a lot of things that are being taught there. So I thought that maybe I could give an alternative title and say, what kind of water are you drinking? What kind of water are you drinking? And in this chapter, in this chapter of the book of John, John the Apostle by the Holy Spirit again records for us another masterful and brilliant conversation between our Lord Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And John is still developing and illustrating his teaching. Apostle John is developing and illustrating his teaching about how sinners receive the testimony of Christ because none can receive Jesus by their own will or their own effort. Amen. John has told us that in the beginning, Jesus, the Logos, is the one who came into the world. But when he came into the world, his own did not receive him. And if you still recall from John 1 verses 11 to 13, this is what Apostle John recorded for us and said, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those that Jesus came to were all in spiritual darkness, and the darkness as we land did not comprehend the light as to put out the light. So they did not receive Jesus. But if there was any who received Jesus, it was only because they had been born again, and this by the will of God. And these would be the ones that Apostle John records for us in John 3, the conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, 16. These are the whosoevers. These are the ones who believe in the Son. And if the whosoevers receive Christ, it's only because they were born by the will of God and not of man. And if they were born by the will of God, it means God chose them. They were chosen by the will of God and not of man. So the Holy Spirit, by the pen of Apostle John, gave us Nicodemus as an example so as to teach us about the kinds of people that are walking in this wilderness, the kinds of people who are walking in the darkness, in this darkness of condemned and sinful men we find two extremes of people who are leading two different kinds of lifestyles. That's the picture that we have. Because John 4 is given in the context of John 3. John 4 is given in the context of John 3 and it's a continuation of the same teaching. 
So what we see is we have on one hand a Nicodemus. We have on one end of the spectrum a Nicodemus who is moral but is condemned. On the other end, we have the Samaritan woman who also is condemned. And they both need Jesus. So on one end of the spectrum, there is the religious and moral people that are exemplified by the person of Nicodemus. This is sinful men and women at their best working to attain life by their own works and self-righteousness. But they are deceived because they do not know something about life and righteousness. And there are many people like these who are very good citizens who vote always, they volunteer, they never get a speeding ticket, and they pay their bills on time and on average are very nice people. But there's a problem. They need to be more than nice to receive life. They need more than just paying their bills on time to receive life. They need to be born again to see the kingdom of God and to possess its life because he who sees the kingdom of God has eternal life. He who sees the kingdom of God has passed from judgment and crossed from death to life. And these kinds of religious and moral people are to be found everywhere and it does not matter the name of the religion or the culture. It is still the same thing and the same problem. It is men working their own righteousness and the end of that is death. The end of working your own righteousness as to be accepted by God can only end in your death. In this group of people, exemplified by Nicodemus, their sin or spiritual problem is presented as blindness. And because they are blind, they are covered in the womb of their spiritual blindness. And because of that, they need to be born out of that spiritual womb into the light of Christ. So to this group, Jesus comes and tells them that they need a new birth. They need to be born again. They need to be born again from above. But this new birth is a new birth that happens at a different level by a different mother. You are not crawling back into your mother's womb. It's by a different way, a different mother from above. It happens by the working of the Holy Spirit. And as we learn from John 3, this is also the work that happens on the cross when the Son of God has been raised up as Moses raised up the serpent. And to the other group, the other group, the other extreme group. This is the group that lives a carefree life and do not care about morality. These are the ones who eat and drink 
and are always merry and take every opportunity they have to have fun. To this group, there are no boundaries to anything. There are no boundaries to anything. They pursue whatever they call happiness. The pursuit of happiness, they call it, is what they are about, even though they don't know what happiness is. Their rule of conduct is, as long as something feels good and is fun, give me more of it. As long as it feels good, give me more of it. But what we see from the conversation that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman is that they do hold to some theology. There's no sinner who doesn't hold to some theology or to some kind of philosophy so as to justify their lifestyle. So we, we enter into this crowd through the window of the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman is presented so that Jesus again would teach us the same doctrine of the new birth, but by a different illustration, by the giving of a water that quenches thirst at a different level and in a different way. It is water that, like the new birth, also comes from outside the work or will of man. So the sin problem of sinners is pictured in the teaching that we are going to be exploring as thirst and needing more than just ice-cold water. It needs more than just spring or distilled water. It needs more than just the city water, but the water that Jesus alone can give. So what we see is between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, these are groups of people who both need Jesus for salvation from their predicament. They need to be born again. Nicodemus needs to be born again. The Samaritan woman needs living water. And for us to understand more the teaching as we develop the background, I thought I would give this profile like a Facebook profile. So if Nicodemus was on Facebook, this would be his Facebook profile. It would say, Nicodemus, educated, rich, powerful, ruler of the synagogue, a Pharisee, a Jewish male, purebred, very moral, highly respected, and very polite and nice guy. This is the profile of Nicodemus. And we see that Nicodemus was a very nice moral guy because when he approached the Lord, he was very courteous. He was very polite to the Lord. He came and he addressed the Lord as rabbi. And of course, he is the one who came to Jesus and initiated the conversation with the Lord. But as we learned, the Lord was not too pleased with that. The Lord took over the conversation and... Nicodemus never had a chance to talk afterwards. And in contrast, we see the Lord encountering this Samaritan woman in a different way than the way that he talked with Nicodemus. But the theology does not change. It's just the illustration that the Lord uses 
to teach the same doctrine. The Facebook profile of Sister Samaritan Woman. She's a sister. We're going to find out at the end of the chapter that she also has a wonderful testimony at the end of it. So we have a Facebook profile, as it, as it were, of Sister Samaritan Woman. She is a racially inferior person to the Jews. She is a Samaritan, which means she is racially mixed blood. She is morally despised as a Samaritan and also as a woman. And theologically, she also has a problem. She is a Samaritan, and Samaritans were heretics. They only held to the first five books of the law. They only held to the five books of the law, and they mixed the true religion of God with other religions from the East. So, this woman is a social and moral outcast. And this is exemplified in her life by the way that she has been taking many men to herself. But for us to gain more understanding of what is happening here, we need to know who the Samaritans were. Where did the Samaritans come from and what are the issues that would cause the Lord to change his itinerary that he must pass through Samaria. This is what we learn from 2 Kings 17, 24-29. 2 Kings 17, 24-29. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to pick up two verses so that you know where the Samaritans came from. Uh, this is what it says, verse 24. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and severed them and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. But listen to this, verse 29. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made every nation in their cities in which they lived. So this is what is happening. The Samaritans are a mixed race of people between the Israelites and the Assyrians. And the people from the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonians. The Israelites who intermarried with the Assyrians and all those nations that were under the Assyrian rule that had been moved into the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is what had the ten tribes of Israel. So when Assyria came and took the ten tribes into captivity, they brought back people from their own empire to come and repopulate the area. And of course there were some remnants of Israel that stayed behind and these are the ones who intermarried with the Assyrians and produced the race of Samaritans. That's where the Samaritans come from. Okay? But this is what we know 
about what they were doing. In 2 Kings 17, 33, it says, They feared the Lord and yet served their own gods. They feared the Lord and yet served their own gods. So there was a hybridization of religion. They knew something about the God of Israel, but at the same time, they carried over all the traditions and the culture and the religious practices of the Assyrian Empire. So because of that, the Jews considered them heretics. The Jews considered them heretics also not only because they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, but that they did not believe in the prophets and all the other writings of the Old Testament. So the Samaritans, though, considered Jews a cult. The Samaritans considered Jews a cult, and the Jews considered them, the Samaritans, that is, as an inferior cult. So these people who are apparently related to each other in some way because these are descendants of Israel, they despise one another. So the, the friction that is there between the Jews and the Samaritans is theological. Very important. Theological. For the Jews, Jerusalem was the place of worship. But for the Samaritans, it's Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was their place of worship. And for both groups, it was a situation of either or. Because as we learn from the conversation, as we will learn next week from the conversation that the Lord had with the Samaritan woman, she actually comes and tries to accuse the Lord and say, you Jews say Jerusalem is the place of worship, but our fathers worshipped in this mountain. So there was a theological difference. There was a theological difference. But to be called a Samaritan was not good. To be called a Samaritan was a derogatory name among the Jews. As we learn even from the Lord in John 8.48. This is what we learn from John 8.48. The Lord was talking to the Jews. Then the Jews answered and said to him, that is to the Lord. Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They could not find a better term. They could not find a better derogatory term to use on the Lord, but to call him a Samaritan. That does not sound good. But even more, they say you are a Samaritan who is demon possessed. That's even bad. There's another problem that the Samaritans had. Not only were they a mixed race of people who had mixed the true religion of Yahweh with the religion of the East, they also, they also resisted and disrupted all attempts to rebuild the temple. They disrupted all attempts by the Jews to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem after Judah had been freed from the Babylonian captivity by Cyrus the Persian. If you know the history of Israel, the southern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Babylonians first. And then the northern kingdom, which is the ten tribes, 
were later taken into captivity by the Assyrians. But the Lord had prophesied through Isaiah that Cyrus was going to bring back his people and allow them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So when they came to rebuild the temple, guess who was there? Is these new inhabitants. They came and were disrupting the rebuilding of the temple. And you're going to read that in Nehemiah 4 and Ezra 4. I'll just read this part of Ezra 4, verses 1 to 5. And that should build enough background for us to go to the story. Ezra 4, verses 1 to 5. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, the people of, of the exile, this is Judah that is coming back from Babylonian captivity. So when these people were around Judah, heard that the temple was being built, listen to this, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, let us build with you for we like you seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of father's house of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia. So this is what is happening. If you go and read the account of Nehemiah, I believe, if not Ezra, when they were rebuilding the temple, they actually got to the point that half of the men were guarding against these people and the other half were building. There was so much disruption and this was coming from the same crowd of the Samaritans. So this hatred and animosity stretches way back. So when John comes then and says, for Samaritans have no dealings with the Jews or Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, this is where it's coming from. That's the background. But even more, to add sword to injury, some commentators say there was a legend among the Jews that Samaritan women were always under the manner of women and therefore were perpetually, ceremonially unclean. That was a legend among the Jews. So it's very unusual then in the context of that for Jesus to come and attempt to speak to a Samaritan woman. The Samaritans are very despised people by the Jews. And now Jesus, the Jew, shows up and he begins to have a conversation with one of their own. So we'll go to John 4, 1 to 14. Apostle John has told us that Jesus is leaving Judea to go to Galilee. And for him to go to Galilee, 
he has to pass through Samaria because Samaria is in between Judea, which is in the south, and Galilee is in the north. And the middle passage is Samaria. So Jesus has to pass through there. And we know Jesus is getting away from the Jews and the Pharisees. Why? Because he has been baptizing more people than John. And he doesn't want to bring much attention to himself at this time. So he leaves Judea to get away and go to Galilee. Which, of course, as we know, he had an appointment with the Samaritans. But if you were a Jew and you were traveling from Judea to Galilee, there were two routes. There was a shorter route, and the shorter route is the one that took you through Samaria. But the longer route, very convoluted route, that's what the Jews used because they never wanted to interact with the Samaritans. But Jesus takes the shorter route, and he goes through Samaria. Why? Because he has an appointment with this woman. He has to pass through Samaria. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, and was sitting by the well, and we are told it was about the sixth hour, this is 12 midday. By Hebrew time, it's 12 midday. It can be Roman time because Roman time would place the time at 6 in the morning. And I don't think the woman is at the wall at 6 in the morning. And I don't think Jesus has traveled all the way through the night with his disciples just to get to the wall at 6 in the morning. This is 12 midday. And I'll give my reasoning more next week when I develop the teaching on how water is fed in this kind of environment because that's what I grew up under. So in verse 7, we'll skip and go to verse 7. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And John adds that commentary and says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. So Jesus, we are told, had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Even though there was an alternative route, the Holy Spirit calls for us and says he had to pass through Samaria. And we know this is opposed to Jesus' own travel schedule for his own disciples when he sent them out in Matthew 10. If you still remember, when Jesus sent out his disciples in Matthew 10, this is what he told them in Matthew 10, 5, 6. He says, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
So even when the Lord gave instruction to his disciples, they were not to go into Samaria. So the Lord is very aware of what is happening there. He knows the geography and he knows the people. But now the apostle comes and says, but now Jesus has to pass through Samaria. Why is it that Jesus now has to pass through Samaria? Because Jesus is driven by divine necessity and appointment with the first fruits of the Gentiles. Jesus has his people from among the Gentiles. And in spite of the racial prejudice, in spite of the theological differences between the Jews and the Samaritans, that does not stop Jesus from going and getting his own. Jesus is not afraid of reproach. He is not afraid of reproach when it comes to getting his own people. No matter what their weaknesses are, no matter how bad their theology is, no matter how despised they are, as long as Jesus has chosen you and you're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, he will move heaven and earth to come and get you. And that's exactly what he has done. But on this day, Jesus was not hoping for a lucky day. Jesus was not hoping for a lucky day and just go to the well and hopefully just find some, some woman, any other woman there. That's not how the God of the Bible works. Jesus has to pass through Samaria. Why? Because he has an appointment with this lady. The lady doesn't know that, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows. The God of the Bible is a sovereign God. The God of the Bible is a sovereign God, and he will make sure that he will meet you where he needs to meet with you. Even though you may not know it yourself, but he knows. So Jesus has an appointment with these people. Jesus has an appointment with these chosen Samaritans. Jesus has an appointment with the first fruits of the Gentiles. And he shows up. But this is put in the context of Jesus coming and drinking water. Jesus feeling thirsty. So in verse 6 of John 3, John says, So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus was tired from walking. Jesus was tired from walking, and he sits right there by the well, and he waits for this woman to show up. And she shows up. And Jesus was so lucky that she showed up. No, he wasn't lucky. <laughs> she shows up because she has to show up. She has to come because the Lord is drawing her. It's her day of salvation. Salvation has come to her. Salvation has come to her house and she has to meet with Jesus. So in verse 7, And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. The woman of Samaria here, in the context in which it's used, is used as both an ethnic 
identification and a religious identification. A woman of Samaria is both a religious and ethnic identification of the woman. She is an inhabitant of Samaria who worshiped Jehovah, the God of Israel, on Mount Gerasim, even though some of her theology was messed up. But Jesus commands her and says, give me a drink. Give me a drink. That's a command. That's an imperative. And here is Jesus who initiates the conversation. Unlike the other time with Nicodemus. Nicodemus shows up and says, oh, we know your teacher come from God for no one does the things that you do unless God was with him. That's Nicodemus. But in this conversation, it's Jesus who initiates the conversation. And the woman responded and said to him in verse 9, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And John puts this commentary again as we read, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So the Samaritan woman readily identifies Jesus as a Jew. To her, it was unmistakable. The moment that she saw Jesus, she could tell that this man is a Jew. But she is surprised at the request because it's a request that's coming from one who is a Jew and a man. And I'm thinking Jesus had to have been wearing something that communicated to her that this man is a Jew. And if Jesus was wearing some kind of cloth that showed that he was a rabbi, as a woman, she was not even supposed to be talking to a rabbi. So it's very curious that Jesus would come and talk to her and she makes the realization that this man is a Jew. Why is she talking to me? So she responds with some air of disrespect and disbelief and irreverence unlike the polite Nicodemus. And we are going to see the development of this conversation as we go through the chapter. Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Unlike the woman, Nicodemus comes as a very polite guy. But the woman does not come as a very polite woman. But this is Jesus' attitude. You have to compare and contrast Jesus' attitude towards Nicodemus and Jesus' attitude towards the woman. With Sister Samaritan, Jesus gently opens up to her. Jesus is very gentle with her. But she tries to play hardball with Jesus. She has had five husbands and now she is on a sixth live-in. And she thinks she can play tricks on Jesus. She is used to roughing up men. There's no more fear factor for men for her. Having had so many husbands has reduced her fear factor for men and so she is ready to argue anything and everything, even if it's theology. She's ready for it. Even though I can see that you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, and I'm not even supposed to be talking to you, but right now 
I'm ready to argue theology. Or you Jews, you say Jerusalem is the place of worship. But our fathers, here, right here, that's where we worship on Mount Gerasim. She is trying to hide something. We will develop that. So this woman is arguing with Jesus. It's almost like what you see on, on Facebook. You have a lot of women there arguing theology. And you can almost imagine her having a Facebook account and she's just posting things and arguing with people. That's what is happening here. But further discussion with Jesus soon reveals her own foolishness and her boldness and irreverence are quickly replaced by a lack of knowledge and understanding of spiritual things. So in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus appeals to her ignorance and lack of knowledge of who he was, but he also gives her the opportunity. He makes an invitation to her so as to make a discovery of who Jesus is by arousing her interest. Like Jesus is saying to her, if you knew how good this ice cream is, you would have asked me for my name and for the ice cream. Don't miss this. Because the asking of the ice cream and the name are tied together. Jesus ties the water to his person. He just doesn't say, I have this living water, ask for it. No, no, no. He wants her to make a discovery of the person of Jesus. So if it were ice cream, the ice cream is not being given without finding first the identity of the person who wants to give it. So the ice cream and the person come together as a package. And Jesus says, the gift that I have, if you knew the gift of God that I have, you would have asked me. So the gift and the name of Jesus come as one package. You can't get salvation outside knowing the person of Jesus. Salvation and the identity of Jesus are closely intertwined. They cannot be removed from each other. And this is why the Lord said to the disciples, Who do men say that I am? And then later on, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? So the identity of Christ is very important in your receiving the gift of Christ. Who do you say Jesus is? But Jesus tries to make her more curious about his identity and puts a bait by suggesting to the woman that she should be the one to ask Jesus for both the water and who Jesus is. Jesus is saying, if you have to know about the gift that I have, and if you have to know about me, there has to be revelation. You are not just going to come and see me and, and know who I am. Why? Because if left to yourself, you can only see a Jew in me. 
you won't be able to see anything above that. So you have to ask me, but I am posing the question to you so that you ask me so that I can tell you who I am and what it is that I'm giving. Living water is a, an image, is an indirect term for the Holy Spirit. That's what living water is, is the Holy Spirit. And we know that from the words of Jesus himself, from John 7, 37 to 39, and this is what it reads. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But listen to this. But this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is introducing a misunderstanding. Jesus purposefully introduces a misunderstanding by using a metaphor or a figure of speech to give more spiritual insight to what he was going to teach the woman. And this is Jesus' technique of communicating spiritual realities using physical earthly things and we know Jesus has already done that with Nicodemus but unlike Nicodemus who shows up sounding like he knew who Jesus was and gets in trouble for it you see you always get in trouble if you show up trying to behave and act like you know who Jesus is and that's why Jesus continuously would say no one knows who the son is except the father Except the Father reveal Christ to you, you won't know who Jesus is. And except Christ reveals himself to you, you won't know who Christ is. So unlike Nicodemus, Jesus here invites the woman to consider the person of Jesus. That she also may lay hold of Christ. That she may receive Christ and not let him go in the way that she has let go her five husbands that she may not let go of Jesus in the same way that she has let go of the five husbands. Right now, she's on number six and she's going up. She's looking at number 10. She's moving up and Jesus shows up. So Jesus' intention is for her to ask Jesus that Jesus himself may disclose himself to her that Christ may identify himself to her, for Jesus cannot be known by anybody unless he reveals himself to that person. And when we say Jesus cannot be known by anybody, we are saying Jesus cannot be believed upon as the Son of God who came in the flesh and died and resurrected. And he being your only hope and basis of salvation, that is what knowing Jesus is. So not only is the identity of Jesus important, but he also has something to give that is attached to who he is. 
even though Jesus is the one who asked for the water to drink, he ends up making a curious invitation for the Samaritan woman that she may be the one to ask Jesus for water to drink. Jesus is masterfully intending to turn around the situation. He wants the woman to be the one who is seeking water from him and not Jesus seeking water from a sinner. We're going to work this. It's brilliant. Jesus does not need her water because actually if you read the whole story, Jesus never gets to drink her water. It's not there. Jesus did not drink any water from this woman. Even though he's the one who came asking for water. And John tells us Jesus was thirsty, but Jesus never got to drink water from her. Guess what? She ended up leaving all her water pots and ran back to the village to give the testimony of Christ. Jesus never drank her water. And there's theological significance to that. It's brilliant. Listen to this. So he says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Let's talk for a minute about living water. Why living water? We identified living water as the Holy Spirit. But what is wrong with the water that the woman is fetching at the well? The water at the well is not flowing water. If you have had a well, they'll dig, depending on the water table, they'll dig 20, 30, 50, 100 feet into the ground so that they'll get to the water table and be able to get water from it. But this water is not flowing water. It has dead things in it. It has dead bugs in it. It is fouled water. It is water that has no life in itself. It is water coming from a well that has been made by the hands of sinful men and women and therefore cannot give life. It is water coming from the self-righteous efforts of men and is therefore inadequate to give life. The self-righteousness of man is inadequate to quench our need for righteousness. If anything, if anything, when it comes to heaven and righteousness, if that is left for men to do, it will forever remain undone. It will forever remain unfinished. You constantly and are always coming back to the well to fetch. Constantly coming back. Constantly coming back. Over and over. And you're going to hear the Samaritan woman say, well, at the end, give me that water so that I don't have to come back. That's the whole idea. Of course, she spoke more than she understood. Because if you actually get the water from Christ, then your righteousness has been completed and perfected. You don't need to work anymore. That's what the Holy Spirit will have you understand. So if men and women have to continue coming to fetch water from their own wells, by doing that, they can never meet the demands of God's righteousness. 
the demands of God's righteousness can never be satisfied by our own water buckets of righteousness. I thought I was done with water buckets. I thought I was done with buckets. And when I started using buckets, I wasn't even thinking of the Samaritan woman. I was surprised when I was writing this sermon. I was like, oh, I'm back to the buckets again. But in contrast to the water that this woman is fetching from the well, living water is flowing water and has life in it. You know that mosquitoes don't breed in flowing water. Mosquitoes don't breed in flowing water. If you have stagnant water, water that's not moving, you have mosquitoes. And living water has life. Living water has no mosquitoes that give malaria and kill you. It's Christ who gives the living water that gives life. So living water is not stagnant like well water. It is spring water. And Jesus makes that distinction. It's spring water because spring water is constantly gushing out and so is able to cleanse someone. It is able to give a righteousness that does not get dry. It is able to fulfill all the demands of God on you. And once it has been given, you need not go and fetch some more. And even more, it is able to satisfy thirst in a different way than the well water. If you need to stop going to the well, you have to come to Jesus. If you have to stop going to the well, you have to come to Jesus. If you have to stop going to the well for salvation, you have to come to Jesus. You have to meet with Jesus. But sinners still want to go to their own wells each morning to see if they can still fetch some water for themselves. And if you have not rested on Christ's water alone, you are yet to meet him. And this does not mean that you are not being religious. This does not mean that you are not going to church. This means that you have not received water from Christ. You are still fetching. So you can still be in church and still carry your own bucket. You can still come to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, but still carry your own water bucket. You have to come to Christ that you may get the water that Christ gives. But listen to what the woman says. Verse 11 and 12. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. So what do we see here? The fast forwardness of the woman quickly evaporates and is replaced by her naivety and ignorance of the person of Jesus. And what Jesus was talking about. She looks at Jesus and she says, but you have nothing to draw the water with. And don't you know that the well is deep? But she said that to him. Are you out of your mind? You don't have the right tools to get any water from the well. What are you talking about? 
And if anything, are you greater than our father Jacob? So this woman apparently is naive after all. She is not as smart as she thinks she is in the face of Jesus. She may have impressed the five husbands, but not this one. You can never outsmart Jesus. You can never outsmart Jesus. Don't ever think that you have some trick that when Jesus asks you something, you're going to draw that trick and try to beat him with it. You can never argue your way past Jesus. It's impossible. Which means you can never find salvation outside Christ. You can never work enough works that you have to bypass the works of Jesus. You still need Jesus. Whatever you do, you can never make a defense for yourself. That is not Jesus. Okay? You can't cheat Jesus when it comes to salvation. There's no back door that you can climb or a fence that you can go around to sneak your way into heaven. You have to come to Jesus. So she looks at Jesus and sees that he is not carrying anything with which to dip into the well and bring out some water. She is obviously a very practical person. And how we love practical people. <laughs> she is a very practical lady. But it is obvious that she has lost the kind of water that Jesus is talking about. She is reasoning as one who is of the world, just as Nicodemus was reasoning about the new birth. Remember what Nicodemus said in John 3, 4, when Jesus told him that he has to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So this is the equivalent statement from Nicodemus that she is saying. She says to Jesus, you have nothing to draw with. What you are saying does not make sense. Nicodemus says to Jesus, what you are saying about a new birth does not make sense. So both of them are exactly in the same situation. And Jesus has taken the request for water and turned it into a misunderstanding, as I said, as he did with the new birth with Nicodemus. Jesus takes the familiar, we even see this with these parables, he takes the familiar and turns it on his head that he may teach we have a person and even ourselves spiritual truths. Okay, so he takes this opportunity to introduce the reality of the situation of the woman. And Jesus works the theology. So the woman is lost about what Jesus is talking about. Just as Nicodemus was lost about what Jesus was talking about. And now Jesus takes advantage of that to start teaching the spiritual truth that he wanted them to get. Listen to John 4, 11 to 12. She said to him, Say you have nothing to draw with and the wall is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? 
who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. So the woman is definitely shocked. She is shocked by the statements that Jesus is making. She is in the physical realm and Jesus is operating in the spiritual realm. He is talking spiritual things. But don't miss this. The woman has been disarmed by Jesus. The woman has been disarmed by Jesus. And she begins to show the same kind of curiosity as Nicodemus was showing. Now, she wants to know who Jesus is. Because if you go to verse 12, she says, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? She is getting to be interested in the person of Jesus. Initially, it was a Jew. Now, she realizes that there's more to this person, even though she's still fleshly, but she realizes that there's more to this person that she is talking to. And look also, don't miss this. Initially, she said, how is that, that you being a Jew, you're talking to me, a Samaritan woman, being a Jew, and now the salutation has changed to sir. Don't miss that. It's very significant in this chapter. Because what we're going to see as we draw to the end of the chapter, the salutation of Jesus by the same person is going to keep getting better and better and better and better until she says exactly who Jesus is. So the titles of Jesus are beginning to change. Why? Because she is starting to learn some truth, even though she is still in the physical. And remember, initially, it was Jesus who was seeking water from her. It was Jesus who was seeking water from her, but before she even gets Jesus his water, she is the one who is seeking water from Jesus and wants to know what kind of technology, what kind of resources do you have, what kind of bucket do you have, because I don't see you carrying any bucket. So, if you have to give me that water, I don't see you with the technology, with the implement to use to draw water from. So she thinks Jesus is foolish. She thinks Jesus is foolish. And she reduces the conversation to this present well. She's thinking, well, this well is deep. And some commentators say that well, the Jacobus well, was found, and it's about 100 feet deep. So she's thinking, this guy is definitely nuts because he doesn't have anything to draw water with, and yet he is talking to me about water. But who is this guy? Who is this guy? Is he greater than our common forefather, Father Jacob, who gave them that well? And as I alluded to in my introduction, the Samaritans also are connected with Jacob because they are a mixed race from Israel. So they know something about Jacob. And Jesus being a Jew is also a descendant of Jacob. So she has some things that she knows. Okay? So in, in her mind, there could not be anyone greater than the patriarchs. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So she's curious. She's curious. And she's thinking, could this guy, could this man be greater than the patriarch, Jacob? So she asks, you are not greater than our father, Jacob, are you? Are you greater than him? And by that question, she is anticipating a negative answer from Jesus. She's anticipating for Jesus to say, oh, of course, I'm, I am not greater than our father, Jacob. What are you thinking? But this is what she doesn't know. She doesn't know that Jesus is going to say, assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus is Jehovah himself right there standing with her. So in John 4, 13 to 14, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him shall never thirst. But the water that I'll give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus explains what is wrong with the water that she is drinking. He says, whoever drinks from this kind of water, your kind of water from Jacob's well shall thirst again. This water that you are drinking does not quench thirst. It only provides temporal relief. But I have a different kind of water that gives a permanent and lasting solution to your thirst. And guess what? I am the only one who has it and can only give it. And by the way, it comes as a gift of God. This is what Jesus is also saying, also saying in your own context. Whatever it is that you try to do to find approval with God, it's only going to last as long as you think you are good at it. If whatever you decide to do, whether you are a good mom, sooner than later you're going to discover that you're not that good. And if you have put your confidence in that, you will never find rest in it. If you thought you are a good worker at work, you may have a good year, you may have a good three months, you may have a good six months, but something is going to happen that's going to show you and remind you of your imperfection. So Jesus is saying, if you have to rely on the efforts of your own hand to find satisfaction, that's never going to happen. It's not going to last. You can go to the well and fill a lot of water buckets with water that may last a week, that may last a month, but you still have the reality of coming back to the well. There's no rest for you. So Jesus is saying there's no rest for your own salvation through your own efforts. You should just cease trying to be good and come to Christ. Okay. So how is the water that Jesus is giving different? The water that Jesus is giving is different in that it is given only by him. Very important. It's only given by him and it flows only from inside the person. 
and does not come from a physical well. It does not come from the realm of the physical. So which means everything that you do in your own flesh comes from the realm of the well, of the physical well, and it profits nothing. And the water that Christ gives provides two benefits. He gives us the two benefits that it gives, which the water well, the water from the well doesn't provide. He says, number one, the one who drinks this water will never thirst again. The one who drinks water from Jesus will never thirst again. The one who drinks this water shall never die again. Why? Because this water gives a new life. It gives a new birth. So Sister Sarah, Samaritan, I'm giving a name. But the Holy Spirit did not give us a name for her. Unlike Nicodemus. So Sister Sarah, Samaritan, needs this water as Nicodemus needs the new birth. But this is what happens. When Nicodemus is taught on the new birth, the new birth ended up with what? With eternal life. And this water also, when it's been taken by this woman, it also springs up to eternal life. So the new birth and the living water are doing the same work in the person. They are giving life. And by giving this water, Jesus was also claiming his divinity. For in the Old Testament, only God had promised to give living water. Only God had promised to give water him as the fountain of life. So Jesus comes and says, I am the one who is giving living water. And listen this from Jeremiah 2.13 and Jeremiah 7.13. For my people, this is Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, listen to this, the fountain of living water. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and yearn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And listen to Jeremiah 17, 13. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So Jacob's well is a broken cistern that can hold no living water. But listen to this. Verse 15. That's going to be our last verse. Okay? Verse 15 is going to be our last verse. She said, Say, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. This is what has happened. Jesus has successfully turned around the situation. He has turned the giver to be the one who is seeking. He has turned the giver to the seeker. 
the hunter has become the hunted. She was the one who was supposed to give Jesus water, but now not only is she asking water from Jesus, she is begging water from Jesus. And in the meantime, there's not been any water that has been exchanged. It's still a water conversation. She says, say, give me this water. She is the one commanding Jesus. Remember, at the beginning, it's Jesus who said, give me water to drink. But now she's the one commanding Jesus. Give me this water, say. Give me this water. But here is the theology, and this is very important. You have to listen carefully. What the Lord commands, he alone gives. What the Lord commands, he alone gives. But when he gives it, it looks to us like we are the ones who are commanding him to give it to us. But it is not so. We, are, we only command him that which he has already commanded in us. We only command him of that which he intends to give to us. He is always the first mover in all things. Listen to this. If there's any thirst for living water, if there's any thirst for the things of God and Christ, it is only because he is the one who commanded first and our petitions to him are only in response to what he has already commanded in us. Amen. There's therefore no one, no one who comes to Christ unless God has commanded and supplied what he commanded for them. Listen to this. Jesus comes and he asks from a woman something that she can draw. Jesus makes the command. And yet he is the one who provides the water to her. God requires you to believe, but you can't believe if he does not grant you the faith. God commands you to repent, but you can't obey if he does not provide you the resources to repent. You only believe in Jesus, not because you fetched water for Jesus. Why? Because you can't fetch water for Jesus. This woman could not even fetch water for Jesus. Your will cannot fetch water for Jesus. Your will cannot choose Jesus. Your well can only go as deep as Jacob's well, and that is a very shallow well, and it draws dead water. It draws water that has you coming back again and again and again. No satisfaction. But you need a living water that leads to eternal life, to everlasting life, to an everlasting righteousness. You need water that does not run out. You need water that never dries up. Your works are broken systems. Your works are broken systems that hold no water. You pour water into it and the water just goes to the ground. 
Eternity is too long to bring your own water of righteousness and life in your own little bucket. Your bucket is too small. Your bucket of works and righteousness is too small. You need the gift that Jesus has and that is what he has given to his people. And God does not need to show at your doorstep with some physical bucket full of water. That's not how it works. His eyes are hidden to us. We can't see what God is doing just as we are told in John 3, the wind blows where it wishes and we have no power over it. We can't control where it goes. We can't control the power of the wind. We can only see what the wind is doing. So is one who has been given living water. They're not going to have a bucket full of water that everybody will see and say, oh, wow, you have a lot of water there. Not that kind of water. When we have been given the living water, it shows itself up in faith in Christ. And this water, the water that Christ gives, it fills and quenches human thirst. And human thirst, my brothers and sisters, is sin. It's sin and our need for righteousness. It's our need for acceptance. I will tell you the honest truth. You can never feel accepted. You will never have peace with God until you rest in the water that Christ alone gives. So the woman says, Sir, give me this water. Give me this water. So you see the trick that Jesus played on the woman. She is the one who needs water. Jesus does not need water. But he uses the water that he may show her her real need. That he may show her her real need. But she is thinking, is this man going to get me some piped water right into my house? They don't have that technology yet. But she's thinking, if he has to give me some water, that will allow me not to even come to the well. Oh, this man is glorious. Give me that water so that I don't have to come here. But you have to know also how she's talking. She is a woman who is unpopular. I have a more complete profile for you next week. She's a woman who is unpopular. The time that she's coming to fetch the water is not the time for fetching water. Because it's 12 midday, it's really hot. In this area and even where I grew up, by... 12 midday is when you have the highest temperature. So it's so hot, it doesn't even make sense. So the very fact that she's showing up at 12 midday is saying that she can't come with the rest of the women in the morning to fetch the water. Why? Because the women of the village don't like her. She's been snatching people's husbands. That's why she shows up late in the day. So if she can be spared the trouble of coming to this well, what wonderful news for her. She would love that. So I'm thinking this is how she is reasoning. So she is thinking convenience. She is tired of the daily trip of coming to the well and the shame that she has because of her husband's snatching. But this is not what Jesus is talking about. He is saying... Your works cannot save you. 
you keep working until you die. So Christ comes with a better way and a better water, a living water, clean water, uncontaminated water, the giving of the Holy Spirit. He is talking about her need and your need for a new birth and a new life. So the question that you have to answer is, whose water are you drinking? Whose water are you drinking? What kind of water are you drinking? Because everybody is drinking some kind of water. Everybody is involved in some drinking. Everybody is going to some kind of well. So you either are going to be drinking from your own well, you're going to drink your own water that you are fetching by your own effort, that is your works, that is your effort, that is your doing, and if you do that, you are going to continue to come and fetch some more and never get rest and never get satisfied and you finally die or you come and get the water that Jesus alone provides. This living water that springs to eternal life. But there's something as I close this. That's interesting. Both Jesus and the Samaritan woman know the law. She knows about the Pentateuch because she believes in the first five books of the Bible, the law. Jesus does not come and hit her head with the law. Jesus knew everything about his sin. Jesus did not come and say, oh, by the way, that adultery, he is going to reveal his sin to her. But he does not say, well, now that you know what your issue is, I want you to go back to the law. He does not say that. The law cannot help her at this point. She is already condemned. Because if the law could help her, if the law could help her at this point, guess what? She would not be going on a sixth man. If the law could help her spiritual condition, because her problems, all her physical and emotional problems are coming from spiritual issues. All our problems come from the spiritual realm. If you settle the spirit, if you settle the things of the spirit, all the other physical problems will come in their place. And of course, I'm not saying that you're not going to have struggles. No, that's not what I'm saying. But the manifestation, how she was living her life, was being ordered because of the condition of her heart. And without the Holy Spirit in her, she could not order herself to really settle and commit to one man. Okay? So, to our last statements. This is what the Lord would want you to know. Going to fetch water from the well is works righteousness. That's what is being taught. It is hoping to attain eternal life through your own works and your goodness. But Jesus says, whoever drinks of their own bottled water of good works 
can never satisfy the demands of God's righteousness. And everyone is drinking some kind of water. It doesn't matter. Just look at people when they have their water bottles. <laughs> some people have flavored water. Some have distilled water. Some have spring water. They are all trying to stay hydrated. But the question is, are they hydrated enough for heaven? Are they hydrated enough for heaven? Are you hydrated enough to reach heaven? You may have your water from your own well, but is it enough to last you eternity? Are your good works enough to earn you righteousness that no matter how good you are, you may actually be a nice person, but is that enough to last you your need for water of righteousness in all of eternity? I'll tell you the solution. Run to Jesus and ask him. Amen. Ask Jesus. Ask Jesus for his kind of water. Because he says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew, so if you knew the gift of God, the gift of God is not kids. The gift of God is not a house. The gift of God is not a marriage or a good marriage for that matter. The gift of God, Jesus says, if you knew what it was, you would ask him and say, give me a drink. Give me a drink of that gift. Give me a drink of that living water and he will give you the living water. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. the Lord. Let's go before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before the throne this afternoon. Lord, we honor you and praise you, glorify your name. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the teaching that we received from the book of John, the teaching of the living water that springs up to eternal life and not the water from Jacob's well. For the water from Jacob's well can never quench our thirst. We have to continue to come back and back again and again until we die in our sins. And Lord, we thank you for giving us the gift, the real gift that we need, the gift that Christ alone can give, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He has come and in God his people and may he cause the righteousness of Christ to spring in our hearts. May he cause our spirits and our hearts to be stirred to the things of Christ that we may continue to look at Christ alone for our hope of ever quenching our thirst, our need for righteousness and for our payment for sins. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.